We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And this week we are going for a very recent film, Cam. What do we have? Yes, we are tackling the 2021 Netflix film, Munich, The Edge of War. Netflix film. It just has a bad stink to it, doesn't it, when you say it like that? Get used to it. That is the world in which we live in, and I'm sure I will be repeating that exact phrase millions of times by the end of this podcast run. That's very fair. I I did just want to ask as well, is this the most recent film we've ever tackled that isn't a declassified episode? We did Tenet um, pretty close to its home video release, I believe. Um, So that one might be the only contender that I can think of. Yeah, that's a very fair point. I hadn't thought of Tenet. Maybe Tenet takes the crown. That's fair. But in terms of Munich... The Edge of War. I had uh, never seen it, despite being on Netflix since last year. I'd, I'd never really watched it. I think we were doing the podcast when this film came out, so I just assumed we would tackle it at some point down the road, and, and here we are. But what about you? Exact same story. I remember this showed up on my Netflix, you know, top 10, and I was like, ooh, Munich, Edge of War, that's something I would totally watch, because I do tend to watch a lot of World War II films or documentaries. And then I read the synopsis, and I was like, Oh, this sounds like a Spy Hards movie. I'm just going to kick that one down the line. You know, I added it to our master list to cover and was basically just waiting to cover it. Well, here we are. Let's uh, let's not keep people waiting. Here is your letterbox.com synopsis for Munich, the Edge of War. Secrets. Betrayal. Treason. At the tense 1938 Munich conference, former friends who now work for opposing governments become reluctant spies racing to expose a Nazi secret. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought, I, I thought I'd add some razzmatazz to that one. What do you think? I don't know there's a lot of razzmatazz to that uh, summary just in general. So that's uh, not one. Like I feel like a synopsis like that, maybe perhaps just this movie as a whole, has a very you know specific target market, and I don't know it's going to venture beyond that so much. Well, well what is that target market to you? Just out of interest. History buffs, um, people that enjoy watching period piece kind of um, historical dramas, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, I've definitely got some notes on the film, but it's actually got, I mean, and just to let everyone know, this week we actually have an interview with the writer of the film, Mr. Ben Power. Um, He's actually actually much more known for his work on the stage here in in the UK, but uh, this is one of his only screenwriting credits. So we're looking forward to talking to him later this week. Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. Um, but Cam, how did we get Munich, The Edge of War? 
Okay, so this was um, an adaptation of a book called Just Munich. They added The Edge of War because obviously Steven Spielberg's uh, film Munich looms very large, so they need to differentiate it when it came to, you know, obviously marketing a movie, putting it in the, the uh, you know, out there for distribution. But um, the book Munich was published in 2017. It was written by Robert Harris, who's an English novelist and former journalist. He worked at places like The Observer, The Sunday Times, and The Daily Telegraph. And his specialty is typically historical fiction. And he built a book um, around the 1938 Munich Accords, as you know you referenced. And um, his sort of the the concept of the book was sort of a, a alternate look at um, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and how perhaps the perception of him has changed with time. And a lot of historians have kind of began to look at him very differently. He was, I think, viewed very negatively. Is that correct in the past? Yes, he was known as the Great Appeaser. Right, yes. And so the book's aim was to try to say, well, hold on, maybe there's a little more there that we need to be exploring. And um, are you familiar with Robert Harris by any chance? He's actually right here with me. <laughs> Special <laughs> guest. <laughs> hey, Bob, how's it going? <laughs> no, I, I'd never heard of him, but you know, I don't really read that many books. I always mix up his name with Thomas Harris, who wrote, Silence of the Lambs and all the uh, Lecter uh, novels. So when I saw Robert Harris, I was like, <laughs> "Wait, the guy who wrote the Lecter books?" I'd, I'd have more luck doing a Hannibal Lecter impression, I think, than than, than a Rob Harris. Oh yeah, totally, totally. But um, Robert Harris has actually had a number of books adapted for either TV or the big screen. Um, in 1994, his book Fatherland became an HBO movie starring Rutger Hauer and Miranda Richardson. In 1995, um, his book Enigma came out and that was actually a big screen movie with Doug Ray Scott and Kate Winslet. We'll cover that further down the road on the show. And also in 2005, you had Archangel, um, which uh, became, you know, the uh, BBC movie starring Daniel Craig that was one of his early breakthrough roles. And he also, uh, a little awkwardly, paired up with Roman Polanski a couple times for The Ghost Rider. Um, which was a good movie with Ewan McGregor and Pierce Brosnan, as well as um, An Officer and a Spy, which I haven't seen, but I guess goes on our list to cover. I suppose so. And, and just by the way, Cam, you mentioned Archangel, and it, it, it rung a bell in my head, so I just went and quickly checked it on IMDb. And it's actually written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, two of the chaps that contributed a lot to the Never Say Never Again uh, script. Oh, interesting. Bond connections galore on Spy Hearts. And it stars Daniel Craig. That's right. That's right. I, I am racking my brain. I have vague memories that that role was, uh, I think, a little influential on him getting Bond. I'd have to dig into the archives on that one, but I have vague memories of this. Well, it came out in 2005. What year was uh, Casino Royale? 2006? It was, yeah, it was fall 2006. So depending on... Yeah, when it aired. I'd have to go back and check the tapes. But, uh, I mean, to be fair, it would have been shooting in 2004. So it's entirely possible. And we are going to be covering Casino Royale. Not so far in the distance. So uh, we can track that down later down the road. But um, this movie was um, produced by Turbine Studios, which is an independent company. And uh, they also made the uh, Steve McQueen Small Axe series, which was incredible. And obviously, distribution was by Netflix. Now, the writer who was brought in to adapt Munich was, as you said, you know Ben Power. He was a playwright. He's the associate director of the National Theatre since 2010. 
in terms of yeah, as you said, like there's not a lot of you know screenwriting credits. He had done five episodes of The Hollow Crown, which is a show that adapts um, Shakespeare history plays. He'd also been a story producer on a limited series called I Hate Susie that I wasn't familiar with, um, as well as you know he'd worked on the Layman trilogy, which was a uh, hugely popular Tony-nominated play fairly recently. Is that correct? And I think there's a spy connection there. There actually is. Yes, he he co sort of I suppose directs slash produces it with Sam Mendes, who of course made some Bond films. Just a couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what. Probably one of the less famous ones, like, I don't know, Skyfall or something like that. Mm, yes, yes, indeed. Now, director Christian Schwacko, um, he was a German-born director. His background was in journalism. He'd been working in German films since about 2005. Most notably, he did two episodes of The Crown, though, in 2019. And one of the producers of The Crown is a man named Andrew Eaton, who was a producer on this film. And he urged the director to read the novel Munich, which is sort of how that connection happened. And also notably, uh, Schwokow directed a movie called Je suis Carl, which starred uh, Janis uh, Niewoner, who is one of the co-stars of this movie. So that's sort of how that casting happened as well. And also another casting um, trivia note is that Jeremy Irons was attached to this for a long time. He was one of the earliest people attached to it because he is friends with the author, Robert Harris, and I guess got an early manuscript or at least early printing of the book and said he would love to play Neville Chamberlain and had kind of remained sort of loosely attached to this over the many years. So um, when the project actually finally started happening, he was a immediate on board. Well, I'd, I'd wondered, and I'll put this question to Ben later this week, but because Jeremy Irons was also in The Hollow Crown, I wondered if that's where the connection came from. It seems like from all the interviews I read, it was his friendship with um, with the author, Robert Harris. But, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't hurt to have multiple connections to this story. Sure. And we're missing out another massive connection as well. Um, you mentioned the, the Lehman Brothers um, and Sam Mendes, who also made 1917, which stars the lead, George McKay. And yet, from everything I read, that wasn't the K like there was no connection with 1917 it was actually a casting really? director yeah I actually found a quote on that they said it was the casting director who just came up with the idea of George McKay uh, working on this film fair enough I mean I, I assume that was the connection but if it's not that's it's just not the case yeah apparently uh, Sam Mendes wasn't really um sending over too many ideas when it came to <laughs> Munich yeah it, it's surprising really I mean he did a really good job in 1917 so I, this just seemed like a natural sort of follow-up quite surprising really that the connective tissue isn't there yeah so this was also a covid production and um the writer and director for example didn't meet face to face until i think six weeks before production everything was done over zoom the movie was shot with very strict covid protocols which is actually quite impressive when you look at some of the crowd scenes but it was actually a very difficult production to actually get through and they said it was uh, often just very very tense to kind of work under those protocols during the pandemic is it i see i never got any sense of that but this is why i don't do the behind the scenes research and i leave that to you but like i see a lot of productions on tv and and in film and you'll just feel that it's like there's only two people yeah. in this shot in every shot there's just two people 
instead of like large groups. But I never got the vibe from this film. So a fair play to him for sort of keeping the lid on that. Yeah, they said, I mean, everyone was very isolated, but also everyone was in masks except for when they were on camera. So it seemed like there was no real issues, but not necessarily the most relaxed way to work, I would say. Especially if it was quite an early COVID production. I could definitely see it being quite tense. I mean, if this came out in 2021, yeah, they must have been shooting it in late 2020 then when the, when the restrictions started to ease. Yeah, I would have to imagine, yeah. A scary time to be uh, making films. That's right. And um, obviously this didn't play in theaters. This was a Netflix distributed movie. But um, I'll just say the top three for this year. 2021 was, of course, a bit of a strange year. The top three was number one was Spider-Man No Way Home, obviously. Number two was The Battle at Lake Chenjin, which was a Chinese film about the Korean War. And then number three was a movie called Hi Mom, which was another Chinese production. It's a comedy about a uh, daughter who time travels back to meet her mom when her mom was young. Um, I haven't seen those two films, but uh, they were incredibly popular. Incredibly popular. So they outgrossed, like, Bad Boys 3, all that sort of stuff? Yep. Wow. Wow. Oh, it wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. I think uh, I think uh, uh, Chang Jin made something like $900 million. I was going to say, is that... I was, like, did they, did they only get second and third place because there wasn't any other successes to it because of the restricted sort of release schedule? But it sounds like still at 900, it probably would have beaten most films. Yeah, like, I think uh, F9 landed at like number five or six or something and that was a big release huh does that mean then i mean this is off topic i i suppose but in in the next few years we're going to see a lot more chinese films in the top five top ten it is quite possible because they're starting to as well limit the number of north american films that play over there and that was often one of the keys to why some of these american films were making just enormous box office so if you start to cut that down for example in 2021 black widow eternals and shang chi did not play in china so i think they wound up with grosses around the you know 400 500 million kind of mark but not obviously the 900 that something like you know lake chenjin has yeah interesting times when you know, just because a film doesn't open in China means you miss out on another potential $400 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just seems like they are just, in general, cutting down the numbers of North American releases anyway. So that's just going to kind of be the norm. But uh, I'm sure something like, uh, you know, Jurassic World Dominion will probably play over there and make a fortune. I was trying to think of a dinosaur pun about it making a lot of money. I have nothing. As I'm sure... Jurassic World Dominion will have nothing. <laughs> I think that's almost a guarantee. But uh, that's <laughs> I'm not looking forward to that film, Cam. <laughs> but that sort of uh, sums up the behind the scenes I have on Munich. Um, the issue with some of these Netflix films is there's not like these rich, um, you know, histories that I can really draw from because they're very new releases and Netflix tends to clamp down on a lot of its production notes. So we will find out a lot more when we talk to the screenwriter this week. Well, just as a... And I'm sure we can dig into this with Ben as well. But with these productions and taking them directly to Netflix, does that mean they have less money to work with because it's not a major studio backing it? Uh, No, Netflix was actually spending a lot of money on its um, original films. So... In, in many cases, they were often overpaying for projects. So, no, it wouldn't be a limited money thing. 
I was just wondering because I, I know like a lot of filmmakers would want their film to go straight out to theaters. What I, I was wondering what sort of what would incentivize them to go direct to Netflix apart from money, but maybe that is just the 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 main reason. The one thing I've really began to notice with Netflix is, and this may change because obviously Netflix stock is down, and some of their big Oscar gamble movies have not yielded huge viewerships or Oscars for that matter. I do think you'll see this change, but at a certain point, they were just basically throwing money at people and giving complete creative freedom, which actually produced some really terrible movies. But that would actually be very appealing if you're a filmmaker. It's like, here's X amount of money. We don't care what you do. Just give us something. So almost like they're given more freedom. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'll ask you because I don't know if I know the answer to the question, but what's the worst Netflix original film you've seen? Oh, this is tough. I mean, Bright jumps to mind. The Will Smith one. Oh, yeah. With that chap who wrote that. Uh... It was um, a Max Landis written film. Yes, um, that's it. With like fairies and stuff, right? Yeah, that was horrible. Also, uh, Duncan Jones's Mute was really, really terrible. And I loved Duncan Jones's Moon. And when he said he was going to, um, you know, make a spiritual sequel, I was super on board. And then Mute was just a brutal slog to get through. The way you said both those films made it sound like you have to say Duncan Jones's before every one of his film titles. Is that the case? Uh, I like to because, I mean, Duncan Jones was at one point a very exciting filmmaker. And then uh, now it's more like, ooh, I don't know. Well, it would just make saying some uh, other film titles very long. Sure. Well, look at John Carpenter. He attaches his name to everything he does. Everything is called John Carpenter's blank. So do you have to actually say that when you say John Carpenter's film? I don't. I don't. Okay. I was going to say, that's an interesting choice. But we're prolonging it. Let's talk about Munich, the edge of war. I think I'm going to go first, Cam. Yeah. I had an interesting experience with this film. I had no idea about it going into it. I knew, obviously, it was... Like I'd seen some stills, so I knew it was to do with sort of the war. And I knew the, the one of the lead actors was German, so I had a feeling it would have some German language in it, which it did. But the first time I sat down to watch it, I mean, I don't know much about Neville Chamberlain. I'm not really a, a, a child of history. That's my brother's forte. Um, I had a really good time watching this film. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I, I found it to be quite gripping, quite tense at times, you know, seeing this sort of pre- World War Two London, I think it's quite fascinating. I think they, it looks the part. It, it It's quite a good-looking film. I feel like there's a lot of money on screen here. Um, And then, like, I, I got to the end of the film, and I was like, this is this is really good. Like, these two hours and so flew by. But the second time I watched it, I had a very different reaction to it. Okay. Because I'd done some research about Neville Chamberlain. I think that's probably one of the main things that hurt it. Because... This and you mentioned this in in sort of the the sort of making of section. This this idea of like rediscovering Neville Chamberlain and sort of reframing his actions, um, at, at the Munich at Munich Accords and all that sort of stuff, was was generally disliked by many historians because it's just factually incorrect. Like that whole "peace in our time" speech is from him, and it was on the eve of war. And he and and most people know him to be the man who sort of put off the inevitable with Hitler. Whereas there's a lot a good chance that potentially he could have been taken down much earlier and saved many many lives. 
and that generally that is generally the spectre over the legacy of Neville Chamberlain. And so after I read that, I feel like I'd sort of reframe the film somewhat, and I couldn't take it as seriously because it, it's like trying to reframe something that's completely ludicrous. <laughs> right. Like look at this. Look at this hero trying to like you know <laughs> trying to stop a war for a year so we could prepare the, the the British army. But like if you look at reports, the British army was in absolute shambles when the World War Two started. That's why we lost at Dunkirk. So I, I the second time around, I had a, a much rougher time with it. But I, I will say, like, I still am able to enjoy. I think between the director and, and the writer, they've managed to craft a story, a, a fictitious story, that's very tense. I think the acting is, is very good from all three leads. There's definitely some problems I've got I want to get into with you. But overall, I think it's still a, a very tense and uh, gripping suspense story. Yeah, I enjoyed this one as well. I had some concerns when it started. I thought, like, there was early sections of this movie where it was just them hanging out at, at an Oxford party that I thought was edited very strangely, where I was like, what is going on with this editing? It almost felt like they were getting some sort of note about, you got to speed this up, speed this up, and they were just cutting around crazy that I was really like, uh-oh, what kind of experience am I signing myself up for for the next two hours? But once it kind of got past that early section, I thought it kind of calmed down and found its rhythm. And um, I thought in terms of just like creating a portrait of what it was like, you know, both in Britain and Germany as, you know, World War II was kind of beginning to unroll, I thought it was really fascinating. I loved everything to do with kind of the, that sense of ominous, you know, building tension just on the streets and having the, um, you know, the SS you know, troops just out wandering around, you know, just in Germany, um, in Berlin, or sorry, in Munich. And um, all of that sort of stuff I thought played really well and created that sense of atmosphere. And as I said, this was a COVID production. The fact that they, you know, managed to make it feel big is actually very impressive to me because I've seen a lot of movies, as you said, where everything felt very small, including the Marvel movies that came out this year, where it felt like people were isolated in warehouses in Georgia. This movie had like a real kind of sweep to it that I very much appreciated. And I thought the I, sort of the aspect that was the um, the espionage stuff was actually really fun. It was this, you know, obviously it didn't actually happen, but nonetheless, I was totally interested in watching these two men, you know, one British, one German, taking part in this unlikely espionage mission. One of them is a terrible spy, which I thought actually added to the movie. It's something you and I don't get to tackle that much, which is someone pressed into service to become a spy who's really bad at it. <laughs> like, really, really bad. Wait, wait, wait. Wh which one is really bad to you? Because I've got notes on them both being terrible. Well, I would say uh, Hugh Leggett, uh, the character played by George McKay, is the worst. Oh, I mean, he makes some... <laughs> he makes some bad choices you are right i do have some notes on both of them though yeah but there's a scene where like he just like wanders into like a uh party at like the embassy and he's just like looking around wildly <laughs> and it's just like wow this guy could not look more obvious or stand out more it was more like i think there's a scene where they're both in the bar later on and they're just talking in german mm. about the fact that they're trying to steal secrets very loudly in this bar <laughs> in germany that's trying to go to war and you just think is no one listening? There's an SS soldier like watching them on the other side of the room. He can't hear them. But there's people sat next to them on the table. Would one like if you're sat at dinner, Cam, and someone is saying to you, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking about uh, breaking into that bank over there. I, I I've got all this stuff to break in. 
to his friend who's also sat there, and they also both happen to be wearing ski masks. Would you not call the cops at that point? <laughs> probably, probably. It seemed yeah. uh, in a like politically volatile environment. It seems like a very bad call to just be like talking about stealing secrets that could take down Hitler. Um, you know, in just a tavern. Like, who, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> Uh, to be fair, they, they they're not they both of them aren't spies, so we, can, yep. we we're not lamping on them. But this is this is us having a bit of fun. So please continue. Yeah, and so overall, like I just found sort of this historical what if story genuinely entertaining. It had some very tense moments, which I was also concerned about because we know that the war is inevitable, and so when you tell me I'm in for a two hour story of you know two guys trying to stop World War Two, I'm like. Uh oh, this could be really tough. But I thought they actually found, uh, you know, several scenes to create suspense in. Um, I thought their handling of Hitler was actually very effective, and they made a lot of scenes involving him very, very like nail biting to watch. So in that regard, I thought it worked. I thought at times it was a little too stately. It had a little bit of that historical biopic kind of gloss to it, and that's also part of the Netflix sheen. You see, like Netflix movies, I find often look kind of. I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. I know they use um, a, a very set technology on their productions. Everything has to be shot with a specific 4K camera that when compressed for TVs actually looks a little different than most movies do. So it kind of gives it this gloss that I'm not a big fan of. And it's not just in this movie. It's in many Netflix original films. But I found just like visually it didn't pop the way I would have hoped. But Overall, I thought it was a really, you know, engaging what if kind of historical suspense thriller. Yes, I like the what if angle. I think one of the things I bumped on was just if you're going to do that, go further. Yeah. Like if you're going to make up a make up a scenario, you're going to change history, change it. But really, by the end, it goes back to the status quo. I at points thought wait, is this going to go like Inglorious Bastard style? Like, is this going to mm. end with them stopping World War II or something? Yeah, because he stood, uh, you know, spoilers, but towards the end of the film, the um, German spy, Paul von Hartmann, is stood right in front of Hitler with a gun, mm -hmm. ready to shoot him. And you're like, is this is this film going somewhere? Yeah. And he doesn't do it because he's he's a human and he is scared, which is, can make complete sense. Um, it, it, you just wonder, like, this is your canvas and you can do what you want with it. Yeah. But, yeah, that's that's a, a thing I bump on. But let's talk about things that we did enjoy. I think, for me, the first thing I liked is, is just George McKay's performance as Hugh Leggett. I think he's phenomenal in this film. I didn't really respond as much to him or Yanis Wienomer in this movie. That's really interesting. Like, what was it about his performance that really grabbed you? I just quite like this. Uh, maybe it's the Brit in me seeing the Brit in him, but this like keep calm and carry on, right? Stiff upper lip attitude towards it all. I quite like that this, you know, this this man, this family man, has a wife and kids. I want to talk about that wife in a bit because mm -hmm. I've got some notes there. Mm -hmm. But you know, trying to rise to the occasion and and do his best to save the world whilst under the pressure the pressure of this uh, this friendship that he has. Um, that's also there and this fracture that has formed between them it's a very personal story in that sense but like i think he was great in 1917 uh, uh george mckay i should say and i just think that like he has a certain level of 
I'm not sure I know the correct term for it, but just you know, I, I can see him in the situation. He, he's selling me on the character. Like, he's very good at just kind of grounding the movie. Like, he's a good, you know, audience POV avatar character. I just found, like, I found the two male leads were a little underwritten for me, where I just had a real tough time grasping them as, like, fully fleshed individuals. Whereas, for me, like, what I, the performance to me that just really stood out was Jeremy Irons as Chamberlain who I thought was phenomenal. Like, you know, I guess we're getting to something where I really liked. Like, he has multiple scenes here where I was just riveted. Like, there's a moment where he's standing in a garden talking about his regrets about World War One, And I'm just like, this is an acting masterclass here. And I was so thankful they found many uses for him throughout the course of the movie because I was, you know, sometimes when you see a really established actor like, you know, Jeremy Irons pop up in a movie, you're like, well, I'll get a couple scenes and then you know, maybe the younger stars take over. And I was so thankful that Chamberlain played such a role, uh, such a big role, because I think Jeremy Irons was just on fire here. I, I think Jeremy Irons is a, a terrific job as like a backup third character. Um, I don't I don't think I was necessarily drawn in his, to his portrayal of Neville, Ch- Neville Chamberlain so much, but I think my uh, takeaway on him was probably damaged by knowing history. And I think there is a bit of a divide there because in like, you know, we're in North America, like I don't think Neville Chamberlain has as much of a storied reputation that people really know about. Um, I remember that, you know, maybe nine months to a year ago, I did watch, I have a collection of PBS documentaries on World War II, and I was watching this series called Road to War, and it would look at each country and where each country was. Um, at the dawn of World War II and how it kind of led up to that. And I watched the one about Britain and had seen all this stuff about um, this this conference in, in this film. So it was actually fairly fresh in my memory. But even still, when I think of the British during World War II, it's, it's not about Chamberlain, right? No, it's always Winston Churchill. Of course. And he always referred to uh, Winston Churchill, always referred to Neville Chamberlain as the appeaser. Right. But then they were on different sides of the political spectrum, so they were never particularly friends. As far as my knowledge goes, if I'm wrong, please do let me know. But but like I said, like the first time round, it, it's a bizarre snap for me, I have to say. like The first time round, I actually watched this with Hannah, my better half, who makes the artwork for the show, and we both were just sat there like watching the film. It wasn't like something I would check my phone every so often check my emails, she would check her phone. We were both just sat there, like, just aghast at this film, like, just really just sucked into it. And I, I have to say that must be, like, that's between the performances, the direction, the writing, something there obviously clicked in me. And then I went away and did all the research about it, preparing for the the interview uh, that we're doing and also for this review, and then went back and watched it again and just felt like my entire experience was tarnished on it. I've never had that before, which I, I just find it strange. That second time round, like I, I know Jeremy Irons is giving us a fantastic performance. I can see that. But like I'm not buying what he's selling. And it's interesting when you actually look up, you know, reviews of this movie, uh, that is a sticking point for a lot of people about, wait, in this story full of characters, why is it a redemption story for Neville Chamberlain? Like there's a lot of heroic figures tied to World War II. Like why is this the person we're focusing on? And if you're going to make up a story, why not just make up about other people? Right. Well, I mean, 
I think the problem maybe there is that this is, you know, based on a book of historical fiction. It's a kind of what if book, but it's portrayed in such a stately, um, grounded manner that I think for a lot of people, a lot of people who watch this film, they'll walk away going, well, that's what happened. Yeah. I Well, if I had to done the research for this, I would have assumed that's what happened. Yeah, and when you watch something like Inglorious Bastards, which also takes an alternate look at World War II, no one walks out of that going, I watched a biography. Like, that movie is very stylized. Oh, I'm sure a few did. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm there's sure a few. did. I'm sure there's a few. But it's so stylized. Brad and Pitt was in the war. <laughs> it's so stylized and specific that I think um, most people would walk out going like, oh, that was just Tarantino having fun and going crazy with history. Whereas... This movie, I think a lot of people would walk out of it going, like, I'm sure they changed some things, but that's probably what happened. Yeah, which I think just goes towards, like, saving Neville Chamberlain's image. But I, I don't know who's clamoring for that. Well, I mean, on this side of the pond, I, I don't think anyone really thinks beyond the obvious for what the movie presents. And I, I would guess a, a fair number of people who would watch this movie would also think all the stuff involving your two young leads in the spycraft was also real. Totally was, guys. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, another thing I liked, and I mentioned it in my sort of top line review, is I think the film does a wonderful job of maintaining tension without like draining the viewer right because i've seen plenty of films where like it's and I, I this is one of my problems with like horror films especially like jump scare films where it's constantly trying to keep you on the edge and then like every so often <laughs> you'll jump yeah this film is keeping you on the edge of your seat or the edge of war <laughs> thank you take about take about yeah you're welcome everyone um but it doesn't ever feel like it's draining like i felt especially the first time I watched it, I was just captivated by what the story the story it was trying to present. So I, I feel like it must have done something right there. And it feels like it's finding organic ways to create suspenseful moments and tension that don't feel like crass or, you know, just cheesy. Like I referenced up front, like I thought the way they dealt with um, the Hitler character in the film was very effective. He's played by Ulrich uh, Matez, who played actually Goebbels in the movie Downfall, which is a pretty iconic World War II film. Um, but he's not what I typically think of when I think of, you know, Hitler. Obviously, I've watched a lot of documentary footage, but just even as portrayed in movies, it feels like a bit of a different take on, the, on that individual. But there's so many scenes where it's him and the Paul character. Um, you know, Paul it's his job to bring Hitler his you know news clippings as to the coverage he's receiving and there's just all these scenes of Hitler you know kind of going through news uh, prints and then talking to Paul and some of these sequences are so suspenseful there's a whole bit with a watch that Hitler borrows that I thought was just really like nail biting i i agree i think the the stuff with Hitler was quite dramatic uh, the, the bit with the watch is particularly a moment you mentioned also the bit at the end which i've already alluded to with the gun mm. is particularly tense i did just think interestingly with uh this chap Ulrich mathis who played hitler in the film i, I don't know i don't know why as if it was a choice but it felt like they, they like made his uniform two sizes too big interesting 
Like, it felt like his head was too small for the rest of the uniform. Like, he was maybe three small children <laughs> pretending to be Adolf Hitler. Did he seem different than most Hitlers you've seen in movies? Yes. Like, Hitlers I've seen in movies, uh, and I don't think anyone's trying to portray Hitler in a good light in movies. No. But I, I feel like they just try and do, like, an accurate version of what they see in historic footage. Yeah, like, they watch you know, his big speeches and basically model it off of those. And even the visual, you know, you said the wardrobe, but just the visual of this actor as Hitler. At first I was like, eh, that doesn't look right. And then his voice came out and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And yet by the end, it kind of all worked. And because the character, you know, that as portrayed here, there's like so much with his eyes of his like he never blinks and he's always just staring into the soul of Paul. And I found like the performance, while very different than most depictions I've seen in movies, it really gained a life of its own and was very, very effective. Which reminds me, Cam, could you please turn your camera off? <laughs> I'm staring into your soul. <laughs> you are. You are. Well, I I think I think the performance is great. I'm not knocking the actor. I'm knocking maybe the costuming choice or right. maybe it was the wrong choice of actor i don't know but i i just like in terms of the look it really it's actually in one of my dislikes i was going to come to it so i'm just i'll do it now but it's bizarre when peter sellers in casino royale 67 looks more like hitler when he's dressed as hitler than this chap does yeah and i don't I mean, that's something where I'll have to ask maybe the writer about because it does feel like there was specific choices being made to differentiate from what has maybe become the caricature we know of as Hitler. Like it felt sure. like they were trying yeah. to create something kind of whole cloth that would feel like a different type of character on screen. Well, it's it's your film to play with. You can do what you'd like. If you want him to look more diminutive, absolutely fine. I just... it. It jumped out to both of us, and I find it interesting that it jumped out to us. Yeah, because, I mean, the actor played Goebbels, as I said, in Downfall. Yeah. And that's a very different physical type than is usually cast in that role. It's, it, but And this is it. Like Obviously, there was a choice made during production at some point to present Hitler this way. And I'm, I'm sure we're picking up on it by discussing it now. And I'm, I am genuinely curious to speak to Ben to find out what those choices were, because it, it feels like it, it has to have been a choice. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's one of the really interesting angles the movie takes on this what if history scenario that like, you know, months and months down the road when we've, you know, covered however many hundreds of movies, you know, later on, that is an aspect of the movie I won't have forgotten. I really think that's going to stick with me. Well, what about you then, Cam? Any other likes you have? Just the sense of world building. Honestly, like it's the sort of thing I find just so powerful to watch. Just the looks at what um, Munich was like at that at this point in time, how Britain looked at that point. When we see like those deflated balloons just kind of hanging down, I'm like, this I probably wouldn't have cost that much to put together, but just that single moment has such like a sense of atmosphere about it. And just that looming dread I thought was really effectively carried through the entire movie. And it's a movie where, I mean, a lot of the audience could sit there and be like, well, 
I know how this ends. As, you know, I mean, we've seen time and time again, that doesn't really matter. Look at the movie Titanic. There's a lot of great examples of movies where the outcome is known, but the movie is suspenseful. But people still go in, myself included sometimes, with a sense of, well, I know how this is going to end. But I thought, like, kind of the building atmosphere and just sort of the historical recreation of it all really added to the tension throughout the movie and made me feel more sucked into the world it was creating. Well, you know, you can go into most franchises and know that your lead's going to make it through to the end, except for some recent entries. But, you know, usually James Bond's going to come out the other side, and that doesn't stop the film from making you feel dread or fear. And it just it just means that the, the writers and directors have to work within that parameter. Yeah. And I think one of the things they did that was really successful there was, obviously, they create a very foreboding atmosphere, but they also put two fictional characters in very suspenseful scenarios where you don't necessarily know the outcome because either one of them could have been killed. It's entirely plausible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe in another film, maybe one of them should have been killed. But just in terms of the practical world building, you mentioned the sort of anti-air raid balloons that they put up over London. And there's a particular shot that stuck in my mind the first time I watched it, and I looked out for it again in the second time. And that's when they're leaving 10 Downing Street and the camera sort of has a, a weird upwards angle. I think it's the, it's the Prime Minister coming out of 10 Downing Street and you can see the balloon looming in the sky. Yeah. Now, 10 Downing Street is a visual that's burned into the, the retina of almost every single British person listening to this. And I imagine many other people around the world. I'm sure you know what 10 Downing Street looks like on the outside. Um... I, it's not really jumping to mind. Maybe, how so? Like, what's? Can you explain that a bit? Well, it's like the black door with ten on it. It's where the prime minister usually stands and gives his like little speeches to the press. Oh right. I'm sure if I showed you a photo, you'd be like, oh yes, of course, ten Downing Street. Right. You'd understand. It's where he resides, basically. Well, it's where he works. He doesn't reside there. Um, but that like, but we're so used to that shot, and then seeing this, and you see a shadow on the ground of the balloon. Like it, it there's a presence. And that looms heavy over you as a viewer because it makes you feel like there's like an otherworldly f- feature of this, like something's not right. And that adds, to, again, to the sense of dread and foreboding of what is to come. I, and and I, I said it in my like, likes uh, or in my top-line review, this, this idea of dealing with like pre-World War II London and Berlin I think is a really fascinating rich soil to dig into. I'm not sure the film does enough of it. Um, I'd like to see someone else do more with it. But I I think it was a a very interesting set of visuals. And even just the visual at the end when you have Chamberlain giving the speech and it's like the stormy clouds um, up in the sky. Like I thought that was very effective as well. Maybe maybe a little on the nose, but very effective. I think by that point, and that's the problem with some of these, some of these like, biopic films or like these, these these world war ii films that look back again it's a problem with operation mincemeat i don't know if you've actually i'm not sure at this point you've actually watched it yet no i haven't yet but we all know how the film ends so it's, it's a real struggle for any writer to stick that landing in a satisfying way because we all know world war ii is still there um one thing which is kind of a like but also like just an overall thought is this film is like this film reminded me of a different film whilst I was watching it. Another film that I enjoyed quite a lot. And that was The Courier. Right, yeah. 
uh again a different period that's a cold war film this is a world war ii film but again it's about a a man plucked into the spy world because of his connections and unwittingly becoming a spy and dealing with the consequences now how the courier ends for benedict cumberbatch is perhaps a bit more sad than it is for george mckay's hugh leggett but there's a lot of parallels and i think it it's taking the all the best aspects from the courier yeah and i'm glad you brought up the courier because that actually jogged my memory to what uh, an element of this movie i really liked was which was like the espionage element and an everyman thrown into a high tension politically unstable you know spy mission and that um i think uh, you know benedict cumberbatch is a little a little better at the gig in the courier but over here like george mckay is not very strong at this at all and I found just the sense of someone who is an everyman being thrown into an espionage situation. Really, it really worked here where he wasn't good. And you could just tell that it was someone kind of fumbling through this scenario. And that's something I would like to see more of in some of the spy movies we cover in the future. I'm sure there's many out there because I always find it kind of compelling because the stakes are so high. And it's someone who's basically been hired for a job they don't know how to do and has to start on the most high pressure day in their entire career like that to me is just a really endlessly compelling situation to examine in a movie and i thought you know it was really interesting to watch george mckay have to do this especially when you're dealing with people like neville chamberlain it's not like he's just working with low-level spies he's got to actually try to manipulate neville chamberlain at certain points of the movie like that is really high pressure stuff and so i thought anytime they were working within that espionage realm it actually worked really well yeah, I, I again, I would agree with that as well. I think it's it, it's a fascinating little concept, and and it has popped up quite a few times on this show so far. Something like Jumpin' Jack Flash springs to mind, although that's more of a comedy. <laughs> I thought it was a serious drama. Well, I'm just I'm just picturing what Whoopi Goldberg would be like in this situation. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg would have gotten those papers, no problem. Yeah, yeah, she probably would have punched someone. Yeah, uh, and then uh, for some reason, um. Jonathan Price would turn up. Oh, so Jonathan Price would probably be uh, Neville Chamberlain. That's right, and he would have stopped World War Two. <laughs> yeah, and then kissed, uh, and then kissed Hugh Leggett. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different film. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's an interesting concept, and I think this this is obviously a, a more serious, dramatized version of that concept. But I think it's a it's a fun uh, attempt at it, nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I thought. In terms of this sort of mission, it actually reminded me a lot of last week's movie, uh, British Agent, which is also quite similar, where it's a diplomat being sent wait, on a spy wait, wait. mission. Do you remember something about that film? It's bits and pieces. <laughs> it's gone. I've lost it completely. <laughs> where it was a diplomat being essentially drafted into a spy mission. In that film, it was in uh, Russia. And uh, here, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> around the time of the Russian Revolution, <laughs> and here it was Germany. <laughs> but I found here I wasn't completely baffled by all the historical elements. Like here, they actually, I think, just, I mean, we just have a better understanding. I think, at least over here in North America, of World War II than we do with the Russian Revolution. But um, I thought this was a better handling of that sort of unlikely spy scenario than British agent. 
we, we we definitely made our work uh, harder for ourselves by picking two stories we're not particularly uh, knowledgeable about these last two weeks. <laughs> Neither one of us are history majors. <laughs> no. Or, or, or podcasting majors. No, clearly not. <laughs> we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, the Thunderball commentary is live and we are tackling... Da-dun, da-dun... Da-dun, the Pink Panther from 1963. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, let, let's pivot over to some dislikes and I'm, I'm going to start us off hot. Okay. I want to talk about Jessica Brown Findlay as Pamela Leggett. Okay, um, why? Boy, does she get shafted in this film. I mean, that's some badly written stuff, I have to say. I was actually going to go bigger and say a lot of the female characters in this movie, maybe almost all of them, maybe all of them even, are given very little. Oh, are you are you talking about the love interest that's just swept under the cover until like the last five minutes and it turns out she's been beaten up, basically? Okay, let's start with uh, the wife of uh, Hugh because yeah. let's just start there and we'll move down the line from there. Well, okay, so she's the wife. My problem with this is the wife character doesn't get a lot of time. and She starts off by putting pressure on Hugh Leggett to spend more time on their relationship because he's not paying her enough attention and not, and not like, he's not watering the you know the grass you know he's not he's not watering the flowers he's not trying to tend to his garden that is his relationship there's a lot of gardening metaphors going on there scott <laughs> yeah sorry about that <laughs> munich the edge of my garden um and so like she's but then you know that he's dealing with like the home office and the war is brewing you know what's going on so to the viewer she's just this naggy woman yeah and that's not fair on her because she doesn't know anything and it's written to make her look like a bad guy uh, for trying to work on their relationship when she has no idea war is looming apart from the fact that she just bought her son a, a gas mask but she's sort of making a jovial comment about that too she's not she doesn't really understand the consequences of what might happen and that's a big problem because i think everyone in the audience who's watching this movie knows that World War II is coming. And so you have this character whose really only major character trait is getting angry at her husband and underestimating the significance of an event we know is going to hugely impact the world. And it's like um, the George McKay character, they haven't done a lot of work on that character at this point in the movie, 
but you also know he's working with Neville Chamberlain. You know war is coming. So automatically the audience is on his side. And I think that's a real problem with depicting a character like her who gets like, I don't know, two scenes where she's just getting angry. And you're just sat there going, oh, this girl. Yeah. Like, get off. Like, leave him alone. He's clearly trying to work for good. But that's just, uh, uh, for me, a sign of of bad writing. And there was actually no reason to do it because um, her character doesn't play any real role in the movie. No. So they would have almost been better off just keeping his personal life just aside. Set up that he has a wife, but move on from there. Yeah, I, it reminded me a lot, not necessarily of the delivery, but Amy Ryan in uh, Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. Right, yeah. Who also plays sort of the doting housewife uh, stereotype. But I, I And I remember when we were talking to Matt Charman about that, and, and he said there was a lot more shot for her, but just never made the cut. Yeah. And I have to wonder, and maybe we'll explore that with Ben later this week, that there was a lot more built in around Jessica's performance as Pamela that we just never saw because of time. Because she's a pretty accomplished actress, so yeah. it seemed very strange that she was given like two very generic scenes. Absolutely. And, and you know, this is... Well, this film came out last year. This is a COVID production. So, And I have to imagine those involved were very conscious of... I say representation, but, you know, this is World War II. We, we know who was working in what job. Um, But I, I feel like this is just not a very good choice um it's it's a real shame and it, it drags the first part of the film down i think you mentioned you had a, a bit of a problem at the start yeah um but then there's other female characters of course lenya played by Liv lisa freeze um who is sort of like the girlfriend of yanis uh Niewona. i haven't pronounced that yet in this episode who plays paul van hartman the, the german lead of the film and then she just disappears from the film completely and is brought back as someone who's been, you know, obviously treated horribly by the Germans because she was Jewish and put in a, you know, um, prison um, for a period of time. And she ultimately is there to just be kind of the motivation for the male characters when she's very, like, underwritten through the rest of the movie. Like, that also jumped out to me as well. Yeah, because it's trying to give you this emotional punch. And, of course, it's going to give you a punch because she's been mistreated by the Germans, severely mistreated because she's Jewish. So you have an emotional reaction to it, but it almost feels cheap. Yeah, and I think a part of the problem for me was, like, the Paul character, um, and this is kind of taking, I guess, a bit, bit of a digression, because I want to get back. There's a couple other female characters, but um, for me, like, the friendship between those two was sketched out so quickly over just a couple scenes that I didn't have a real sense of their dynamic in a particularly compelling way. So it felt like they needed a shorthand here to explain why Paul originally was very pro-New Germany and why the switch was flipped to him wanting to take part in this espionage mission. So they just kind of used her as that device where it's not necessarily the best tack to take. Well, again, there's other ways of doing it. And this, and I, I haven't read the book, nor have you. So I, I don't know where the blame lies. And, and as we've learned through two years of doing this show, it's not as obvious as you think it is sometimes. Yeah. It isn't necessarily the writer's fault. We're going to take our questions to the writer this week. And I will ask him about this sort of stuff. But it could be Netflix putting down demands on editing. 
It could be the book. There's all sorts of reasons why this film could have taken this direction. Yeah, and it could just be editing. Like, for example, as you you know, you said, whether it's Netflix or whether it's just the filmmakers looking at what they have and saying, we need to keep the focus on the the two male leads in their you know relationship and the spycraft stuff. So let's cut down everything around it. That's entirely possible as well. Who really knows? We will inquire about that. But I did think like that was another character for me that I just was like, oh, like I don't know that I would make her entire focus in the movie to be Paul's motivation. That's not particularly a uh, good tack to take. And I mean, there's also um, the woman that um, Paul uh, sort of has this relationship with who works also for, I think, the foreign office, I think it was. Sort of has that relationship with, you mean undefined? Yes, yes, there you go, undefined. And um, she's played by Sandra Hewler, um, playing a character named Helen Winter, who in many ways is one of the key characters. She's the one that actually smuggles these papers that reveal Hitler's plan out of the foreign office and gives them to Paul, who's going to pass them on to Hugh. Her story is pretty important, you would think. And yet, like, she really gets sidelined at a certain point as well. And part of this is history, of course, like, as you said, you know, who was in what roles in World War II, but was a character, I'm like, this woman seems to have, like, something of a fascinating backstory like there's more to this character they keep alluding to but i never really felt like we got that much but then as we've said all of the characters apart from like neville chamberlain his sort of inner circle are fictional yeah or based off of real people but not quite so they're still fictional so there's no reason why you could have not just written fictional characters in this story that had more grounding in the story were more necessary to the plot yeah that were women I'm just saying. And then the last one I think I'm going to mention, although if you have any more, do let me know. Um, you've got Anjali Mahindra as Joan Menzies, who's like a typist. Yes. In the f- <laughs> Right? Right? Yes. You know where I'm going with this, yeah? Uh-huh. Right? And so she's just kind of there. She does some typing, and she's just kind of there for some reason, hanging around conspicuously. And then there's this document that Cam mentioned that has like it it details uh Hitler's plan for Europe and obviously Hugh Leggett was in possession of it he's then found out by the SS the SS raid his room and you assume that the document has been taken and then remarkably at the end of the film Joan Menzies the typist is apparently a spy and apparently took it from his room. She's a guardian angel. Did you see this coming? Uh, apparently. She's like that fictitious angel that comes down from the heavens to hand you, you know, some sort of tablet from God. It It's remarkable how they just thought they could just throw that in. She's like the uh, blue fairy in Pinocchio or something like that. Yeah. Um, I was fascinated by Joan the Typist. So much so that I made notes every single time she popped up on screen because I was like, Joan the Typist. At a certain point, I was writing, Joan the Typist equals MVP because this character is just always there, always shown to be watching things that are happening. And I was like, wow, like this character is kind of crazy. And then when they had the reveal that she was this guardian angel and an agent, I'm like, boy, like... I get that they wanted the reveal, but on the other hand, it was so 
on the nose and constantly showcasing her in moments, just silently watching things, that I, I, it was, like, impossible to ignore. But the reveal also just made me frustrated going, boy, I would like to know more about that character's journey. Like, I feel like Joan the Typist might have a fascinating take on this material as well. I, 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 when that happened, I genuinely, like, laughed when she just had the document. I don't think that was the reaction they were going for. Did you suspect there was a reveal coming with Joan the Typist? I knew something was up from the second she turned to Leggett and said, and if you're wondering, I'm from Nottingham. And I just thought, why would you give a random typist this line? <laughs> this has to mean something else. So obviously she's going to keep appearing and she then she's just kind of there. She sees him walk in over after that. He pops off to see the, the old girlfriend in, in the sanitarium. Yeah. And like just loitering around. And then magically in the car at the end hands the document. Um, well, apparently she's the James Bond of this film. <laughs> Jonah Typist needs a spinoff. Uh, what's that? Munich. Edge of Joan. <laughs> when she had the, the no, line... No, 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 no. M- Munich, Joan of War. Oh, yes. When she had mm. the moment where she said, like, I'm from Nottingham, I'm like, I feel like that line is there for the UK crowd, <laughs> not me. <laughs> but I, I don't know what that was trying to rouse out of anyone. It, I, 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 don't, I don't tend to have an opinion on people from Nottingham. It just made me think of Robin Hood. Oh, really? Yeah, whenever I hear Nottingham, I think of Robin Hood, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, fair enough. I suppose you would, really. But I, it's it's interesting because, you know, like, I was talking to someone else the other day about the marvelification of dialogue. Yeah. And how everything has to be witty nowadays. And I thought that maybe it was just that. Like, this character had to have a, a witty line because I think the line, in my mind, came from sort of a an inherent racism. Okay. Because she's not white. Right. She's an Asian British actor. Okay, yeah. So it's like, and if you're wondering, I'm from Nottingham. Whereas like the the question people would ask would be, oh, so where are you from then? Where are you really from? Right. Right. And it's trying to dispel that. It's like, I'm British, born and bred. I come from Nottingham. Don't worry about it. And so I assume that's where it came from. But then I like thought about it. Like, why do you give the person that dialogue? It has to lead to something else, and it inevitably did. But it's one of the silliest reveals I think I've seen since No Way Out. <laughs> I, mean, it, this, I think Kevin Costner did a better job. So Kevin Costner, uh, what, well, actually, I suppose, is it Susie the typist? Joan? Joan the typist, yes, Joan of War. Joan of War has a worse ending than No Way Out. Well, the problem is she's not a character, right? Like, they give her a couple of lines, but she also plays this very important role in paying off. Like, she basically saves the day <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. But she's a non-character, which is always, uh, again, not, not the best uh, choice to make. And, I mean, that document, I think if you track it, because that document did exist, I think it was part of what was presented to America. As evidence. Oh, okay. I mean, obviously, Pearl Harbor did a lot of their motivation for joining World War Two, but I think that document was part of it. So we're, they're trying to say that Joan of War was integral 
to the Allies winning World War Two. But it's just you've you've spent two hours with these two mains two leads, and you've got people who are already established, like Lenya, who's the girlfriend, or Pamela Leggett, or or even um, Helen Winter, played by Sandra Hewler that you mentioned earlier. They've already established these characters and spent way more time with them. But no, no, Joan of War. And Joan of War clearly played an incredibly important role in the shaping of history. <laughs> <laughs> they should be making films about her. Ah, uh, clearly. Um, uh. So a dislike for me was the relationship between Hugh and Paul. I felt like it was just really underdeveloped. And it is clearly like a very intimate relationship. Um, we have the two of them when the movie starts kind of laying on the grass together. These two have a chemistry that is, um, very strong. There's a moment where they're like smoking a cigarette together and exhaling in unison. And I'm like, okay. Um, but I wanted more of it. Like I wanted to have a way better sense of their relationship. We basically get a setup of them drunk at a party, followed by a scene of them fighting in a in a pub over politics, and that's it. And I'm like, I, I, I need how more. we met. Yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> you flipped a table in a in a tavern. That's right. I do remember it very well. I, I was just trying to get the cigarette out of your mouth so I could taste it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> there was something about the relationship that these two actors could pull it off for sure. I just needed more of it to have that emotional hook by the end because you get the sense at the end that like Hugh is going to be devastated if he never sees Paul again. And I wanted to have a better sense as to why. Joe, I feel like in another world, and I doubt this is in the book, but these were two gay men. The vibe is there, I would say. Yeah, it really is. Like this is... I mean, you you could say this is a sort of queer coding relationship, perhaps. But to me, with a few quick rewrites to the script, I mean, you could you could you could lump in the the Sandra Hewler character with Liv, like she could give the story documents over and then get punished for it by the Nazis, and that could be enough to send him over the line. There's all sorts of things you could do, but you could have this sort of star-crossed lovers story that's pulled apart by politics. And I think that's far more interesting. Yeah, and just a sense of, like, you know, if they played the two characters as being gay men in the 1930s, obviously you would not be out, most likely, in 1932 Mm -hmm. and into 1938. And so, like, that would create some really just fascinating character dynamics as well and you'd get a sense of an inner life and just like the behavior they have on screen i think you can have that reading on the movie and the movie somewhat supports it but at the same time it it never feels like it commits to it either so i think when i was going through reviews i saw a lot of users and i'm talking about on like letterboxd a lot of people were saying like they wanted that to be more of the angle on the movie because they really felt it oh so other people felt it too Definitely. Okay. I, then I have to imagine there was some sort of effort in between the two main actors, not to necessarily have like a romantic or sexual connection between them, but just like a, a real solid friendship. And, and perhaps that's what sort of sold it. Because, you know, especially that argument in the, in the bar that you were talking about where they fall out initially over politics. I don't get that heated with my friends. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, passion 
love and hate very close to each other. And I think that's how they're playing it, because they both get red in the face screaming at one another because they're so passionate about what they're talking about. Although it does sound like uh, you and I talking about the Ipcris file. <laughs> well, well, I mean, we haven't got another hour, Cam, but uh, we could. I, yeah, I'm not sharing your cigarette after that. <laughs> You're putting it out on my hand. <laughs> I, is, is sharing the cigarette the new sacred candle? It might be, because like, Again, there's a real intimacy to that relationship, but it's only given a couple moments in the movie, and I think, like, it could have been expanded on. I mean, again, these are fictional characters. You can do whatever you want, and I would have appreciated that, and I think it would have given us an angle on a spy story we haven't really had, at least in terms of the movies we've covered. Well, I just think less is more. Like, all these extra characters... Maybe you don't need them. Maybe you just needed to focus on the relationship between the two, and you could have had a much stronger physical emotional romantic relationship between them especially in the early scenes that they're trying to hide they're being spies without knowing it they're trying to hide their relationship from their peers because it's frowned upon at that point yeah and then they fall out and then they come back and they're forced together again through the machinations of the countries they work for it might also explain why um george seems to be in an unhappy marriage at the start of the movie yeah, I mean, this stuff writes itself. Yeah, maybe. I we'll put it to Ben. I have to think that there's, there's there's there must be some sort of connective tissue here that not just you and I, but other people are also coming up with this concept. But then again, it might just be testament to to George and Yanis for their performances, and just layering in elements like this where you can read it if you'd like to, and if you pick up on it, so. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that was just the sort of thing that like I thought was so compelling that I'm like, give me more of this because I want to have a way better sense of this relationship. And that's, I remember when we talked about Falcon and the Snowman and all three of us kind of agreed that we never had a great sense of what their actual friendship was. And I felt a little bit of that here as well. Yeah, I, I would agree. The only other thing I had left with like a dislike we haven't really dug into is is just the what I wrote down as woeful spycraft. <laughs> woeful spycraft or woeful uh, fist fighting? There's a fist fight? Yeah, he has the fight with August uh, Dale's character. Oh, of course, yes. Well, he gets, his, he gets his butt handed to him by an army guy. That makes sense. I don't think uh, uh, Hugh Leggett's been in a fight his entire life. Probably not. But yeah, nor has he been a spy, so I can't really lamp on him too much. But it did make me laugh when... They'd already done the deed. Uh, no, not in that way. Hmm. Um, but they'd been they'd both been to see Neville Chamberlain. Chamberlain told them to leave. And they said, right, we're, we're going to have to just leave it. This is, this is too risky now. We're just going to go home. I hope for the best. And I hope that he doesn't sign the document or, or, or whatever it was at that point in the film. But then uh, Paul Van Hartman wakes up Hugh Leggett in the middle of the night to go and see Lenya, the girlfriend from the flashback early in the film. And they make the loudest noise <laughs> driving through Berlin at three in the morning in a car with the lights on. You're trying to be inconspicuous. And then they're having a full-blown argument in the car in the street. Like, if you're trying to stay off the radar, what are you doing? Who do you think the worst spies we've covered have been? Like, do any jump out to you as examples where we were like, oh boy, these people are really bad at this job? Because, like, I can say that, like, Cary Grant in North by Northwest is no pro out of the gate, but I also feel like 
he has a real survival instinct, like he's someone who's scared, whereas the two characters in this movie often feel more reckless. Uh, Bob Hope. Oh, Bob Hope in my favorite spy. That is the uh, comparison I was hoping for. <laughs> yes, I, I can't go let a day go by without mentioning my favorite spy or another terrible spy, and that is uh, John John Wayne in Big Jim McLean. Right, yeah, right. Both both aren't fan favorites when it comes to spy movies, but uh, yeah, both uh, both aren't particularly great with the spy craft. I'm trying to think of another one, like a more mainstream film that's not great. Maybe Kevin Hart in Central Intelligence? Sure, yeah. That's not a bad one either. But uh, it's interesting to me that like they don't seem to have that survival instinct because I, I would think that like Paul in particular could easily be arrested and given a death sentence if he was caught for any of this. So I would think he would actually be the far more experienced covert operative here. You know, we see him earlier in the movie meeting with resistance members in just a tavern, talking about mm. having Hitler arrested. Um, I can kind of... I would hope that he would be quite efficient at this. I can understand why, you know, George uh, George's character of Hugh isn't, but like... Maybe he feels invincible just because he's a diplomat and he doesn't think anything bad will happen to him, perhaps? Maybe, but you're right, though. Like, Paul is existing in Germany and working with resistance fighters against Hitler before this even happens. Yeah. So he should be more used. But then it's it's shown earlier in the film several times that he has a he's, like, quite quick to the draw. Like, he, he's easy to temper. So, um... Maybe he's just too hot-headed to really be a good spy. Perhaps. It takes a certain set of skills, and not every uh, individual has them. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's a Brian Mills only sort of thing. Yeah, it, oh, totally. Um, with a particular set of skills. <laughs> Did you have any final notes on the film? Um, well, I mentioned him earlier. August Deal, um, I thought, was actually really fantastic in this movie as kind of a thankless role. He's like the, uh, you know, the Nazi guard who has to watch over Hitler and is kind of like the one guy who's always at the right place at the right time to kind of spy these two guys conspiring. But um, I thought he just gives off such a presence of being kind of scary. And he's a fantastic actor. He's um, the star of Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. He was also in Inglorious Bastards. He's in the scene in the tavern where they're playing the guessing game. He's the Nazi who has, like, the card on his head, I think, that says King Kong. Um, and so, like, he's an actor I've seen in several things. And even though this character doesn't have a lot of dimension, I thought he was genuinely scary in moments. When he has, like, Paul in a headlock, um, he's, like, kind of got that real, like, fearsome bully kind of sense about him. And I found him really intimidating throughout the movie. Yeah, we didn't even really mention that train stuff. But the the stuff on the train, the the sort of tension on that train is, is a really fascinating little sequence because they obviously bump into each other in the street like they're old school friends but then when he turns up on the train and they're bunk mates together there's again this like con confined spaces restriction kind of the walls are coming in on you because you're in this confined space of a train like i think that all those are excellent choices i think a lot of this film has really good choices in it there's just a, some really big errors too you could have made an entire movie about just those two guys being roommates 
when one of them has obviously you know documents they're smuggling because just the tension of that particular scenario would be very strong. I think the movie could have done more with it, but it also has a lot to cover. So I understand why it was given just its, you know, small little bit of screen time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the only note I had left, and it's not something I really want to dig into because we try and stay away from such things. But it's interesting how prescient this film is now. Mm. You know? Yeah. Like, you could really... You could really extrapolate this story somewhere else. Yeah, uh, and that's something I think that's kind of sad about a lot of the spy films we cover, especially the historical ones that look at these very dark periods of time, that uh, we go, huh, yeah, things have uh, not really changed that much. What was the one we did where they were saying like, oh, humanity has changed so much? Oh, it was when we did the Patreon on X-Men, and Professor X is like, don't worry, humanity has changed so much since uh, the old days. And we were both like, uh, has it, Charles? Has it? Mm. Yeah, you might want to go back to the drawing board on that one, Charles. Yeah. And even just like all of the stuff with Chamberlain and the way, you know, politics is this game that does it have great solutions? Uh, I don't know. Like the movie gives, obviously, Chamberlain a little bit of a redemption, but... At the end of the day, it's uh, not exactly a huge heroic strike for victory there. No, and, and and many historians will argue his choices caused the war. So to sort of glorify it in a sense could be quite insensitive to some. And to just like stare a very apparent madness in the face and be like, well, if we just make a peace agreement on paper, things will be okay. Yeah, and uh, that sounds very familiar. It definitely does. Um, I just had the one question. Did you notice some of the choppy editing in the first section of the movie? I've, no, I don't think I did, but maybe if you talk me through it, I might. I just found like that first section, especially in the 1932 uh, Oxford party section, it was like almost like rapid cut, where it was just almost like <laughs> born supremacy level editing going on. And I was like, what is going on? Like it was just some very bizarre cutting going on. I was just drawn to the Catherine wheel <laughs> fair enough it's just it was just so shiny i couldn't look away uh, and i was just imagining me and you sharing a cigarette you know of course of course it got very heated <laughs> las vegas this summer <laughs> <laughs> well um cam i think we should give our listeners a lesson in political reality is munich the edge of war making the knock list what do you think for me it's a no but it is sort of the like solid netflix streaming world war ii drama that i think people will enjoy just sitting down and watching i don't think it's achieving all-timer status for uh, much of what it's doing but i did appreciate the what if world war ii scenario um it has as we said a lot of atmosphere and some uh, suspenseful sequences so as a solid entertainment i recommend it but as a all-time great spy film no Okay, that's one no. Uh, there's no guests, so it's all down to me. I'm going to, not surprisingly, also go with no. I think there's a lot to enjoy here, but I think this is a film of missed opportunities. Frustratingly so at times, because you've got quite a good cast and a good premise. Apparently a good book to work from. So I'll be keen to sort of discuss it more with the writer later this week to find out 
how this film was put together, some of the choices that were made. I'll I'll try my best to dig into it some more for us all. But I think ultimately, is this a film I would say if you if you're just sat around not doing anything, you want to put a film on Netflix and you like spy movies? Yeah, I'd say check it out. But is it an all-time great spy movie? Uh, no, I, I think this film works best when you don't question anything. You just take it for what it is and and leave it there. But there you go, folks. Two no's, and therefore Munich, the edge of war, is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Before we move on, folks, don't forget, this Friday we'll be speaking with the writer of this week's film, Munich, the edge of war, Mr. Ben Power, talking all about his work in theatre and, of course, writing this week's film. Now, Cam, what are we talking about next week? We are not talking about one movie. We're talking about five we are doing our Jason Bourne roundtable. We've assembled a panel, and we are going to get together the way we did with the uh, Brosnan Bond era um, some time back. We are going to look at the Bourne franchise as a whole and break down the best, the worst, and everything else. Yeah, we, we really enjoy doing the uh, Pierce Brosnan roundtable, celebrating everything about his era, and we thought you all seem to like that episode so much as well. We're going to return to the format, but do it outside of the world of James Bond. Also, the date the episode drops denotes the 20th anniversary of the release of The Bourne Identity, so we thought it was a perfect time to go back and revisit The Bournes and salute Matt Damon. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week and celebrate The Bourne legacy if you pardon the pun <laughs> it's solely going to be discussion of the jeremy renner born film let's be honest it, it's all about aaron cross baby that's right but yes it's going to be a very big week for born celebration yeah and also it's nice to have these big episodes for things that aren't just james bond there's more to the spy world than ian fleming so tune in for that and if you enjoyed what you heard this week on the show please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast it helps us with sharing the spy hards message and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spy hards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but if at first you don't succeed try 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 again. Hello, my name is Chris Carm, a filmmaker and podcaster. Join me as I take a look at the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics and organised crime on my podcast, Secrets and Spies, available on all podcast apps. This is Mana from Spy Heaven. 